Welcome to another podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. My name is Raj Pasord and I'm a consultant psychiatrist based at the Bethlehem Royal and Maudsley Hospitals in South London. Joining me today is Dr. David Veal, who works at the Institute of Psychiatry and the Bethlehem Royal and Maudsley Hospitals as well. And he has written with Dr. Derek Summerfield a debate piece in the May edition of the British Journal of Psychiatry around the issue proposals for massive expansion of psychological therapies would be counterproductive across society. And that was the position that Derek Summerfield advocated. David, before we come to you in your, in your attempt to rebut uh, Dr. Summerfield, let's talk a bit about the background to this issue. What's going on in terms of the provision of more therapists? Well, the debate is slightly out of date now because, in fact, the government has now committed itself to a gradual expansion of psychological therapies. This is the Increasing Access to Psychological Therapies programme. And, in fact, from this September, they're going to start the rollout of training of new therapists. So, overall, over the next three years, I believe it's something like three, two to 3,000 new therapies will be in place at different centres around the country. What was the purpose of this startling sort of injection of funds into psychological therapies? Well, the purpose is to follow the NICE guidelines to actually implement them because, uh, as you know, cognitive behaviour therapy has been, uh, or another evidence-based psychological therapies, has been um, got a good evidence base for the treatment of a whole range of psychological disorders, mental disorders now. And as you know also, that the waiting list for getting good psychological therapies is appalling. Um, and very often it's a certain minimum of six months and sometimes up to 18 months. And so there is no choice available for patients. It's very easy to get medication, but there is no choice in terms of a psych- good psychological treatments. I thought there was another background issue, though, which was about the idea that um, the way that Lord Layard persuaded the government to fund uh, these psychological therapies was that he would get people off claiming incapacity benefits and back into work. So his argument, mm. and he, remember he's an economist, mm. was that this, this thing would pay for itself. Yes. And I think certainly from the pilot sites, it's certainly become apparent that it will pay for itself in the long term because, of course, people don't go back to work. Partly it's about preventing people from losing their jobs. It's partly about getting people, first of all, on the first rungs, perhaps getting back to voluntary work, and in the longer term, obviously, getting them back into paid employment. So it's not going to happen immediately after, I think, but that will be built into the evaluation It's surprising, perhaps, that this is controversial. One would have thought Mm. that um, everyone in psychiatry or psychology working in the NHS would be pleased that uh, Mm. there is an injection of funds Mm. to massively fund uh, so many more therapists. But it it has been a controversial proposal. And let's turn to some of the arguments that uh, Derek Summerfield has put in the debate piece. One of his issues is about the prevalence rates of mental illness. And he mm. argues against this idea of the medicalization of society. Um, what are your thoughts about his argument that we're over, overestimating the prevalence of mental illness and therefore mounting a response that's inappropriate? Well, his essential argument is that if you do standardise rating scales and interviews, that up to 15-16% of the population can be diagnosed with a mental disorder. And so there it is a, a good philosophical argument. Is it really, you know, this number of people who actually have a mental disorder? And so it is important still to differentiate between normal human suffering and all the different social 
causes that might be related to and actually when it becomes mental disorder and maybe that's something that we still haven't clarified but you know for the purposes of expanding psychological therapies we're actually only talking about helping you know 1.5 percent of the population of people who are already in waiting lists and wanting help and so on so that I think there are ways of differentiating human suffering from mental disorder, particularly in terms of the way that people cope. You know, as soon as people start to cope by avoiding situations, escaping situations, and uh, trying to misinterpret perhaps normal experiences in a catastrophic way, that's when I think it's no longer human suffering. But it's not clear when it becomes mental disorder, I agree. The specific study we're, we're talking about is one which found a 16% prevalence rate mm-hmm. of anxiety and depression in the previous week mm-hmm. in the general population of the yes. United Kingdom. That's a very high figure for anxiety and depression. And I think David uh, Derek Summerfield's argument is that when you're dealing with something so common, is a medical response the appropriate mm-hmm. one, or should it be a more social and cultural response? Mm-hmm. And I, I have some sympathy with that but I mean those figures are not abnormal in the sense it's the same across all the way other studies across the world and there may well be social responses that are relevant but we need the evidence in terms of helping people to change their environment in various ways I mean the reason why nice guidelines are being implemented is because most of the evidence comes from the psychological therapies the other argument that um, he puts is the notion that somehow getting involved in the system, the mental health services system, disempowers people and may not be actually good for them in the long run. And again, I have some sympathy with that in the sense that certainly what he says from his experience is that soon some people get involved in certain services, they get labelled with a mental illness and it's very difficult to get off that label to get effective treatment. So, you know, part of these proposals are to about improving the quality of the therapy, the expectations that you're going to get back to work. And so all these new centres for increasing access to psychological therapy are going to be like one-stop centres, that there's some brief, time-limited therapy and help in getting back to employment and other uh, voluntary work and so on. So that, you know, it's the expectations that I think are very important. You said that you think there's already some preliminary data that would indicate that actually the thing is going to pay for itself. Mm. I'm interested in that because I visited actually one of the centres where where the thing is being rolled out in Newham. Mm. And I met a couple of people there who had already begun to have the therapy. And they had been off work, both of them, for many, many years. And they were somewhat surprised when I put it to them that actually the reason they were having this therapy was primarily to get them back to work. And they had already, I would argue, sailed past, my sense was they'd sailed past the 16-session limit. Mm. And it wasn't clear to me, A, that um, throwing more sessions of therapy was actually going to be effective in terms of getting them back to work. And it also wasn't clear to me, though they very much liked the therapy and wanted to have it, that they were actually engaged with that process of returning Mm. to work. One of uh, Derek Summerfield's arguments is that we have to look look at patients' motivation. And maybe there are a large number of people who, for the way the benefits structure system is organised, would not be motivated to return to work. Well, this is a a political issue, isn't it? Because we all want people to return to work. And it may be that the governments in the future are actually going to make it more difficult to stay on benefits. I mean, that's what happened, wasn't it, in the States, where there was only you're only allowed to be on benefit for a set period of time. And I suspect that something like that may well come here in the future as well. Um, But my understanding of the new standards is it is very much the expectation helping people to get back to work. But, you know, a lot of the people coming for the new therapies and so on are already in employment. 
Others aren't necessarily seeking employment, but you know the, the costs of the benefit system and so on should pay for it. But that's part of the economic evaluation in the future. You've emphasised um, in your piece and today in our conversation the, no- the notion of evidence base, and that, that's why I think you're arguing that CBT is the best option. A lot of people may not realise, although it's the best option in terms of comparison with other therapies, in fact, if you look at the research uh, with CBT, a lot of people don't benefit from it. No, and of course it's not a panacea for everybody, but it's the best that we've got at the moment. And, you know, it's a constant state of new research, new developments within the field and so on. So I'm quite confident over the years, you know, that the effectiveness does grow. If you compare the effect size from previous decades, it's increasing. The um, scientific view would be that we have to constantly evaluate this process in mm. terms of, of what happens. And, and one of the issues you've raised is whether um, people are comparing CBT uh, with something else, but they're not looking at the issue of what actually is the quality level of the therapist delivering CBT. So they often think people think they're getting CBT when it may mm. not be. No. So are you concerned about the, the, the vast number of therapists that are going to be entering the system and actually whether quality will be maintained? I'm very happy about, and I've been talking to part of the uh, committees that have been looking at this, that the quality of the therapy in terms of the training is going to be good. And the people who are going to get the training are going to be doing, like, say, um, employed by the trusts on three days and getting training on two days for up to a year. So it's going to be good quality training on the job with good supervision. And all the training courses are being accredited by the British Association of Pain and Cognitive Psychotherapies. And it's going to be very closely monitored. I mean, this is going to be good quality and supervision. The practical experience of clinicians like myself working in the NHS is that when a, a psychologist arrives, or yes. someone who can provide CBT, <laughs> uh, we're all very pleased for a while, and then the waiting list begins to develop because they, they fill up all their slots, yes. and then we're kind of back to square one in that more people come out of the woodwork requiring mm. therapy. Mm. Isn't that one of the concerns, that the government's going to end up spending a vast sum on the treatment of common mental illness, but the, the well of common mental illness is not going to disappear. If anything, more people are going to come forward mm-hmm. that were previously put off by long waiting lists. Mm-hmm. And this is about an, an economic argument about the kind of stability of waiting lists. All attempts to reduce them are, are self-defeating because the very fact there was a long waiting list put off people mm. for asking for help. Yes, and I think that's why part of the emphasis is on stepped care, so that actually... The Doncaster team have been doing extremely well in terms of the high throughput. I mean, they've just managed to treat and see 3,000 patients or something. And a lot of that is through very minimal input that's in terms of perhaps two to three hours on the telephone um, with a lot of self-help guided material and there'll be further expansion of computerised CBT. So I think that that will help an awful lot of it. You mentioned that you were sympathetic to some of Dr. Summerfield's mm. arguments. Which of his arguments are you most sympathetic to? Well, I'm thinking at the moment, actually, of a recent studies that have been done by Peter Tyra on what he calls um, NIDO therapy, which is actually more about changing the environment. 
and he's been working with people with very severe personality disorder and chronic schizophrenia who are supposedly you know chronic treatment resistant who don't engage with the local services and so on and what I think he's been doing from what I've seen in his talk is actually mainly uh, a sort of Skinnerian operant conditioning in terms of changing the environment to help people change their behavior just by being nice and changing you know, getting a better accommodation and things like that and actually demonstrating quite good benefits from that alone compared to uh, normal t- treatment as usual as it were in terms of keeping people out of hospital and actually changing their behavior being less aggressive being you know better person so that I, I think we have partly forgotten about the importance of changing the context changing the environment and if, you know that's excellent I want to go back to the practical reality of these CBT therapists who will mm. be doing CBT in an outpatient department mm. hour after hour, maybe mm. eight hours a day. Um, you're a consultant psychiatrist, so am I. We might enjoy seeing clients mm. in the outpatient department, but part of the, the joy of our jobs is that there's a variety of things that we do. Mm-hmm. Is that not possibly going to be an issue, that, that actually it's going to be quite stressful for, for these therapists? Um, I think most therapists will have about... 25, 30 hours of patient contact time. And I think it's going to be a variety of different things. I mean, there's always different anxiety disorders and depression. I think some may specialise in a particular area. And it will be in a different settings. So some of the settings will be in primary care at GP surgeries. Others will be based at a hospital trust and so on. So I think we're not yet know how it's going to evolve exactly. And there may end up being uh, specific treatment centres, a bit like a sort of surgical treatment centre as well. What do you think are the implications for consultant psychiatrists? Um, in, are, are they going to have to change their practice? Um, should they be doing more to find out about what the availability is of CBT now? Mm. Um, they may become rather resigned or develop learned helplessness over the years about the ability to mm. refer people for CBT. Mm. Well, I guess the, the, the first half of that question is more about training a consultant psychiatrist because I always to a certain extent, perplexed. I don't really understand why consultant psychiatry is not properly trained in evidence-based psychological therapies. Because, you know, uh, that's the way it's all going. And what I'm worried about is actually what we do need is more leaders in psychiatry, in cognitive behaviour therapy, evidence-based psychological therapies, who'll be directors of these new centres and so on. And I just don't see them coming through because we haven't really geared ourselves up. We're you know, quite good, therefore, at doing psycho- pharmacology, but why shouldn't we also be just as good at evidence-based psychological therapies? So it, it does disturb me that people aren't better at it. It's not part of the core training in the way it is for a psychologist. So what could a consultant psychiatrist do if they're hearing this podcast Mm. and think they want to improve their uh, training in CBT? Well, for younger psychiatrists, I think it's really important that they get uh, good, adequate training in evidence-based psychological therapies. Um, I think it's partly to do with, if you're already an impost, as it were, it may be that you can modify your job description. Um, It's very difficult, I I know, in terms of a jobbing general adult psychiatrist who I've got so many people with severe mental disorder on their list and so on, where CBT has actually got much less of a role to play. But uh, I still think that it's important that adult psychiatrists don't lose sight of common mental disorders being just schizophrenia and manic depression. Dr. David Veal, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.